I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today in person is, of course, absolutely nobody, because this is being recorded in April of 2020, and anybody who's been in April of 2020 knows that it is a solitary time. However, thanks to the miracle of technology and science, joining us through video chat are doctors Lee Kunla and Elena Papianis. Hey, guys. Hey. So, how are things in your bunkers? <laughs> do you want to go first sure uh things are okay it's dragging on a bit now <laughs> we've we were talking before we went on that it's been already a month days are sort of bleeding into each other i i have to i have to remind myself what day it is is it a weekend is it a work day uh so do my kids my kids have no idea what's going on anymore I've lost a bit of a bit of sense of time yeah the all routine has has gone away but, you know, we get, we, we get to read a lot. True. Which is what we love to do. That's true. I'm, I'm finding I'm going between extreme productivity and extreme uselessness. Mm. Like fully immersed and being productive and feeling good about what I'm doing. And then just like not wanting to do a single thing. Think about a single thing. I'm going back and forth between full uselessness <laughs> and semi-uselessness. Okay. <laughs> that so, seems about right. So what we're doing today is we're going to continue on our study of cryptids. We opened last episode when I became borderline obsessed with Mothman. I haven't fully recovered from my run-in with the Mothman. <laughs> I think I, um, I listened to that episode and my favorite aspect of it was how little you actually talked about Mothman. Yeah, because I don't know what there is to say about Mothman. <laughs> All you can ever do is talk around Mothman. That's what makes it so yeah. compelling. That image that you um, that you mentioned at the end of the video um, of the Silver Bridge and uh, this idea that he's the symbol of um, a catastrophe to come, which I thought was interesting. And another thing that I wanted to mention, when you mentioned the um, great, great horned owl you talked about, there's a story back at Christmas time that I remember, which I thought was hilarious. I think it happened in Ottawa, and there was a family who had brought their Christmas tree in and had like decorated and everything. And at one point, one of the little kids was just sitting on the couch looking at the tree and was like, Daddy, that ornament is really scaring me. And it turns oh, no. out they had an apple in their tree. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And Al was in their tree just staring down this little kid. That's amazing. <laughs> I thought it was good. How do I, this, this whole research into cryptids has brought up, also in my Google stream, just all this weird animal stuff. Exactly stuff like that. And everything is just weirder and weirder. I mean, it's it's like all these surprising things from discovering animals where they shouldn't be to just weird animals that shouldn't exist but do. It's been so much fun. And because we've all been isolated, I think that this has been a, a sort of a nice, relaxing thing to study. I, I, it's interesting how when this catastrophe happened, which actually raises the question, where were you, Mothman? Like, if you're supposed to be there telling us when catastrophe catastrophe is happening, like, where's he been? But I think that's part of the reason why we met, we tried to go a little bit lighter with uh, some of these episodes that we're doing right now. 
Although in the end, I imagine we're all going to spiral off into deep dives into madness anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm so excited because I know almost nothing about Bigfoot. Neither do I, really. I'm excited too. So yeah, it's all on me. It's all so on me. I hope I don't. I hope I don't disappoint you. And you were saying, Lee, that you've done more research into this than maybe any of the other podcasts that we've done. Not quite more, but I came out with a lot more notes than I oh. did for almost all of the other podcasts, and that's always an indication to me both of how much fun I'm having and how much material <laughs> I'm finding compelling that's out there. So I can look back on a JFK assassination or on MK Ultra or on other things. And I can sort of count the pages of notes that I have. And this one tops out at 11 pages of single space notes. Yeah, I know. So Please. my big, I know I, my big concern here is I'm going to forget most of the things that I found so exciting, but this was the, fu- this was what was so interesting about this. I have to admit that I didn't, I didn't think much of Bigfoot before the research. I sort of, it was just a question of how, how quickly can I debunk this and right. move on with the rest of my life? <clears throat> and the more I got into it, the more I realized that, wow, there's like a lot of really interesting stuff here, both from the question of what is Bigfoot? Can we find one? Do they really exist? But also way more interesting stuff, like how does science even determine what an animal is and what is the nature of evidence and all that kind of stuff. Oh, man, that sounds uh, good. Oh, yeah, it got it got it got really interesting. So thank you again, Sockfoot, for having recommended that we look into cryptids, because I had not I would not have done it on my own. And I'm super happy that we did. Yeah, me too. So maybe I should get going. Yeah, let's get in. Just teasing let's, everybody let's, with, let's go with into, how great it was. Let's, let's go into this. the forest. Let's go into the forest. Okay. Well, let me ask you first. And then I, ha- I have a list of questions I have for both of you. Let me first ask you, given that you both admitted at the beginning of the show, you don't know much about Bigfoot. And I know this is not a fair or even maybe reasonable question to ask, but what sense do you have that this is a real phenomenon existing in nature? How likely... Last week we went to, a, or last time we recorded, we did this, um, was it uh, Charles Fort, was it? Charles this Fort. scale of existence, on a scale of existence, from non-existence to complete 100% real existence, where would you locate Bigfoot? Bigfoot seems like one of those creatures that there are so many other, or not so many, but there's enough other creatures out there that we do know exist that could easily be confused for a Bigfoot. So the number is pretty low for me. Yeah. Just because of that very fact that like, it's probably a bear or something else that looks very similar to that. So I'm like, I'm low. I'm like a two. Okay. Okay. So a good solid 20% (laughs) for Bigfoot. Yeah. I'm going to put myself at a 27%, so a 2.7 out of 10, (laughs) because there's nothing about the nature of an animal like Bigfoot that would make him impossible. It would Mm. make them impossible. We've seen similar animals. There's gorillas, there's humans, there's uh, orangutans, there's all these other things that are kind of close. And so for me, it's not wildly impossible that, that these things would exist, but it's because we haven't encountered one that's what really drops that down for me. Okay. So that leads nicely to my second question to both of you. What would it take for you to believe that a Bigfoot does exist? 
Hmm. Ideally, I would see Bigfoot myself. Uh, but even then, I wouldn't necessarily be able to trust my own interpretation of what I'm seeing. I would still need, like, even more ideal than that is some sort of biological evidence that there is a species out there that is different than the other ones we know of, that is unique, that we can characterize as Bigfoot. Okay. I'm going to need to see some poop. Poop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's interesting because as we're going to discover, this is what a lot of Bigfoot researchers get up to is collecting this evidence. And they're, among other things, sometimes really pulling out their hair, saying, you know, look, I got video evidence. I got a footprint. I've even sent off hair to a DNA lab and it's come back as not matching any other animal. And you guys still don't believe that it exists. Hmm. So it's interesting when you say, oh, I'd like some poop or I'd like, you know, I'd like to see one or something like that. Well, this is exactly what Bigfoot researchers have been bringing to the scientific community over and over again. And they're like, how come you guys still don't believe us? So that was actually a question then for me that I had to explore. What is it? What is it to, how do I put this? What is it that you need to demonstrate that you've discovered a new species of animal? Because it happens. I mean, people do discover new species of animal. I encountered one in my research. It's, oh dear, too many notes. It's the... Is it that giant, the one you sent us a link to? No, that was a different thing. So I sent a link to Nathan and Elena about uh, like billions of bacteria or uh, operating together in concert in one giant string, stingy, thingy, six kilometers in the ocean. But these were these were, uh, and I believe that, that was were... the the official nomenclature scientifically of that uh, string stingy thingy. Yeah, string stingy thing or stingy string thingy, whatever. But no, there was another. Uh, there was a spider with hooks on each of its legs that was discovered in 2010 in the United States. And you know how do you how do you convince the scientific community that this isn't just another spider? happens to have a weird leg, but that this is actually something new. So that's a question that we'll have to explore as well. What is it that we need to actually discover in order to be able to determine that we've found a new species? Oh, you may be interested because I was surprised at some of the very serious people who, if they don't say they come out and fully believe that there are Bigfoots without further evidence, uh, Jane Goodall is one of the people who thinks that it's entirely likely. This is Jane Goodall, the ape researcher, right? Wow. The, uh, yeah, I know. She came out in an interview with National Geographic and said, we don't know everything. Large apes, totally possible that they exist and we haven't run into one. Hmm. Now, Lee, you said Bigfoots. Is, yes. Is that the official term for uh, more than one Bigfoot? Is it Bigfoots just, or so, Bigfeet? So I think, I think, I was actually wondering for myself in my research because everybody only talks about Bigfoot. But I think it's Bigfoot okay. uh, as both singular and plural. Uh, Not and big I, feet. And no, no, no feet or S, actually. I, I probably misspoke. Oh. That's my understanding. Okay. Just Bigfoot. But since we're on... If we have that wrong and you are a Bigfoot researcher, come at us. Please do. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a few mistakes in this because I just got way too into the details. So I'm going to be trudging up a bunch of details, some of which may be slightly wrong, even if the general point is going to be what I want to get across. Let me talk a little bit about 
nomenclature and taxonomy and how we refer to these animals because there is I, there was some uh, there was so, some clarification I had to do for myself. So yeti and the abominable snowman are for the purposes of our discussion distinct creatures. Okay, uh, if they exist at all, they are uh, reported to exist in the Tibet and Nepal region in the Himalayas potentially. And they are not related. In fact, the abominable snowman is, even in legend, maybe not a thing, but rather a mistranslation. So we're dealing with the Yeti over there. There are other locations around the world where a, let's call it a cryptid so far, like Bigfoot, is believed to exist, including Australia. But that's also something else. So what we're dealing with is either Bigfoot or Sasquatch. And for the term, those two terms for our purposes are interchangeable, where Sasquatch is the Canadian version of Bigfoot and Bigfoot is the American version, but they refer to the same object. This has already been very helpful to to me. If they already, if they refer to anything at all, that is. They are said to live in the Pacific Northwest. Their area ranges from Northern California through Washington State up to British Columbia and even potentially into southern Alaska. So that whole range of western coastal United States and Canada is considered Bigfoot territory. In fact, most sightings statistically occur in Washington State. That's number one, um, with something I think around a range of 20 to 30 percent of the sightings and then California is number two, the second state, uh, with the second most amount of sightings. In Canada, British Columbia is the number one province where you're going to find a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. I've run into various different physical descriptions. Um, the size can range quite dramatically depending on if you're dealing with an adult or a juvenile, male or female. But the size tends to aggregate around the seven to eight foot height, with males potentially getting larger eight to 10 feet, females maybe being slightly smaller six to eight feet, and then, you know, juveniles, who knows, could be anywhere up to that. Now, most people who've encountered a Bigfoot have done so from some distance away. They, they don't come up close usually, although we'll get into some stories where people have in fact been abducted. So, Measuring whether something is eight or nine feet away at, you know, at 50 or 60 feet distance from you might be slightly difficult to, to do. So, you know, it's a, it's a rough range. Their hair is mostly ranges from a, a kind of reddish to a black with a lot of brown in between. Um, so like brown highlights. S- yes. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, Although it can be, they've been variously described. So all black, all brown, a kind of a mix of reddish brown, reddish black. Ooh, that'd be Some pretty. are even, yeah, and some are even thought to have white hair, and those are the older ones. Because yetis are thought to have white hair, but the Bigfoot, exactly. Nathan is pointing to his own hair and his wisdom. And, uh, <laughs> but the, the, the idea is that it's the older ones that have white hair. Now, most of their body is covered in hair, people believe. There is some debate about how much hair covers their face. Some uh, see it as completely covered in a kind of Chewbacca-like 
uh, style, whereas some have more of a kind of ape, chimpanzee, orangutan facial clearing. I don't know how else to put it. With also maybe the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet being cleared of hair. And they're, they're heavy. They're huge and heavy. So that's about the physical description of the thing that we're looking at. There Now, you know, how does one estimate the population of an animal that nobody has actually seen, or at least that you know, a lot of people don't believe exist and for which we don't have enough physical evidence of? The idea is, and I don't exactly know how this researcher came up with the number, but the idea that I've heard um, repeated a couple of times by Bigfoot researchers in that entire expanse, there might be 4,000 Sasquatches, where I know the plural of Sasquatch, which is Sasquatches. So that would be pretty hard to find, pretty elusive in the best of times. They are thought to be nocturnal, but a lot of the sightings did happen a day, during the day. They are by and large peaceful, although people do have rocks thrown at them. But they tend to avoid any kind of violent encounter. Humans don't seem to be food for them, although they are omnivores. They tend to eat either plants, berries, things like that, or small prey, uh, things like dogs, pigs, deer. And it'll be one of the signs that uh, will alert Bigfoot researchers is if something weird has happened to livestock in the area. A deer has been torn in half. You know, A lot of dogs have gone missing, that kind of stuff. So that is the creature we're dealing with so far. I wanted to just provide a sort of physical description uh, for anybody who might not be quite up on the Bigfoot research. Okay, that's a really good start. I feel I feel like nice and grounded here. Interesting that livestock disappearances is one of the signs of a possible Bigfoot situation because, of course, also a sign of a possible Mothman infestation. Ah, yeah, you see. Well... As I said to begin with, I had a lot of fun researching this. And one of the reasons I had so much fun was because there was no easy way to dismiss this on scientific grounds. So when we dealt with aliens, for example, while I think that there's very compelling reasons to believe aliens might exist, I think there's very solid scientific grounds why I think they have not visited us. I mean, I I really feel quite confident about that and I feel like science backs me up there. With the Bigfoot, you couldn't there was no obvious way, as you said, Nathan, earlier, to dismiss it. I mean, it it biologically and even from an evolutionary perspective, it has some logic to it. It makes sense. I mean, we just haven't found it, and so maybe it doesn't exist, but there's nothing that's actually incoherent about it. So there's a lot of effort to really try and understand this phenomenon from a scientific perspective. And some of these researchers are real scientists. In fact, I'll give you one of the names, uh, one of their scientific researchers. Uh, his name is Jeffrey Meldrum, M-E-L-D-R-U-M. And he's an anthropologist, a professor of anthropologist at Idaho State University. And most of his work is not about Bigfoot. So but when he does look at it, he, he looks at it as a very uh, serious scientific question. Is there an undiscovered North American giant ape? Uh, sort of in the way that Jane Goodall might think about it. You know, just a very straightforward scientific question. As a result, they 
engage in some really fascinating questions. So one of the things about, sorry, this is a big long tangent from where we started just a moment ago, but the question was, well, how do we know what Bigfoot eats? Well, if this thing is huge, and if it isn't, uh, if it is a vegetarian, then there is probably not enough roughage out there for this thing for there to be about four thousand of them roaming around without ever being seen by anybody. So their calorie intake has got to be higher than what you could get just off of uh, plants and shoots and things like that. Um, so this is the theory why, if they exist, they are partially carnivorous. So researchers use chimpanzees, gorillas, and other non-human primates as potential analogs for the behavior of Bigfoot. And so, you know, do chimpanzees hunt and eat meat? Well, at first we thought no, but then it turned out that there are some. In fact, there was, again, the stuff I encountered was so much fun. It, It turns out there's even a species of spear-using chimpanzees that hunt meat. And it's so weird that, yeah, I know. So it was so weird that the researchers are wondering whether they might not actually constitute a different species of chimpanzee. Now, they don't do it all the time, and they're quite happy to be vegetarian as well. Anyway, this leads back to it's potentially possible for Bigfoot to be a meat eater. And it would make sense in terms of the distribution, the habitat, and their inability to nonetheless remain hidden. Now, Lee, you mentioned that they're, for the most part, at least most of the encounters that people have had with them are somewhat peaceful, but you also mentioned that there's some abduction cases, and I'm very, very curious about how those went down. So the stories, there are a lot of uh, stories of encounters. I would say that the modern period of Bigfoot lore or kind of the way we think about it today starts with a guy called Jerry Crew who said he saw Bigfoot in Northern California in Humboldt County, California, which is comes up a lot in Bigfoot research but also is quite famous for um, having an underground illegal marijuana growing scene for like 30 or 40 years. It was just strange that those two things happened to be happening in the same place. I don't know if it's that strange. (laughs) I didn't want to draw any connections. (laughs) So I'll talk about Jerry Crew in a sec, but that's sort of when the modern myth of, or the modern stories, I should maybe uh, say more carefully, about Bigfoot get going. They start earlier. There's a lot that's already going on in the 1800s, although they're called um, wild men before the term Bigfoot is coined in the 20th century. But even before that, going as far back, potentially as a thousand years back, there are petroglyphs, uh, cave paintings of indigenous peoples in the United States, uh, Sierra Nevada being one place among others, where there are cave paintings of a quote-unquote hairy man, who is huge and resembles Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Now, if you think that there... This, these stories are coming from a bunch of different traditions, including various indigenous traditions and then various settler traditions in North America. And then they have really started to ramp up in the 20th century, especially since the 1950s. The stories are quite variegated and quite, uh, there's a lot of them. Some of them uh, fit a really neat pattern and some of them are really not so compelling. 
Uh, I think one of the best or most well-known abduction stories is from a guy named Albert Ostman, O-S-T-M-A-N, who is a Canadian prospector. He claims in 1924 to have actually been abducted by a family of Sasquatch. And uh, he was abducted. He stayed with them for six days. They fed him sweet grass, among other things, or grass, I should say, that tasted sweet. And he finagles a miraculous escape by giving the dad Sasquatch snuff, which apparently put him to sleep and opened the opportunity for him to run away. He actually signed a sworn affidavit to the fact that this went down. And I was wondering to myself if that makes the story any more credible, and I'm not sure, but <laughs> I put it in there anyway. <laughs> that's, so that's one of the most famous abduction stories. When you don't have the stories codified so closely around a concept of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, when it was still before the 1950s, the question of wild men, forest men, which were, you know, big, it's not clear exactly if they were a branch of humanity or not, there were stories of them abducting women. So there would be, there would be a kind of uh, uh, a nighttime abduction of women, mostly. I didn't go, I didn't pursue those uh, because they didn't really fit the mold of how we understand Bigfoot today. Is it not the same um, description as the Bigfoot that you gave us, like these wild men, or did they, did they have a similar description, physical description? They have a similar physical description, but their behavior doesn't seem to fit as closely with what has come to be a kind of a consensus around their behavior. Right. Um, so, and that's where I was a bit, I wasn't exactly sure what to do with that. So here's an interesting analog as well, because there are in fact, and this is, this is the other part that I found so much fun about this. There are a lot of mythical creatures that ended up actually turning out to be real. And so I, I, I'm sure we've talked about the Kraken in a previous episode, but I actually looked them up again as research for this episode, and they really are monstrously scary. 50-foot-long squids that live in the deep ocean that can, in fact, pull a boat down, like not just a little canoe, but can pull a boat underneath the waves. Different seagoing peoples knew about these things or talked about them. But if you listen to their stories, they're not very good scientific descriptions of the Kraken. You know, so there was a thing out there, but their stories didn't really, you know, there, there was a lot of myth that was mixed in with it. And so it was hard to really get a sense of the scientific description. That's what the, the earlier wild men stories seemed like in comparison to a, 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 an attempt to try and get a sense of a North American ape. Like, what's its habitat? How does it, you know, these seem to be really like interested in, to some extent, interested in people, abducting women, things like that. That doesn't seem to fit with the descriptions of Bigfoot as being very solitary, being quite timid. Yes, they throw rocks, but they don't seek human encounter they're incredibly difficult even if you see one to get after so i don't know I, I i dropped those stories because i just i couldn't get even though i don't dismiss them as such i i found them a bit like the norse 
men talking about the Kraken, it would, there was too much mythology for me to make any heads or tails out of it. So my, my abduction story came mostly then from the, uh, from 1924, which is, which is in the lore, very big one. Sorry to interrupt. No, I was just going to say another thing I'm curious about is whether or not in these different regions along the Pacific Northwest where there have been sightings, did we see totally independent um, sort of stories emerge from different places and, or even around the, around, around the same time or not? Or do we think there was like a story that spread, a myth that spread? Like I'm curious as to how if they all popped up sort of independently of one another, which would lend it more credibility, right? Rather than it being maybe one myth that spread throughout an entire region. If we're talking about the cultural myths, they seem to emerge, and I cannot speak to the indigenous populations in North America, because I have no way of knowing to what extent various stories from one people's would be translated or merge into myths of another. But a lot of different indigenous peoples in North America have stories of a wild man. Mm -hmm. And so do a lot of peoples around the world. So there seems to be one sense in which these, at least as myths, these things are independent of each other. Okay. But more to your point about how does a kind of consensus form around what is Bigfoot and what is Bigfoot's nature, movement, habitat, diet, all of that kind of stuff, there does seem to be a kind of wave of newspaper reports that beget more newspaper reports. So, for example, I, I, I noted Albert Ostman, who is the Canadian prospector who was abducted in 1924. But also in 1924, in... Um, it was just by, uh, it was actually on Mount St. Helen. There was a group of miners that say that they were attacked by Bigfoot. Now that's happening in 1924. There's a whole flurry of newspaper reports coming out of East Asia, out of Tibet and Nepal, around a Yeti, the abominable snowman, people interested in that. I know then that people who were reading those reports got interested in thinking, hey, maybe we could discover our own Yeti over here in North America. And so these reports were definitely having an impact on people. And I think certainly after Jerry Crew in 1956, he first makes a cast of a Bigfoot foot. That then becomes a thing. And, and then everybody else after that, if you're going to be a legitimate Bigfoot researcher, you got to start making casts. And so I do think that they're starting to influence each other in the method of how they're discovering their stuff, but also in sort of what they're looking for. How big is the foot? You know. Now, this assumes that's, uh, that some, if not all of them, are hoaxes. So, I mean, if I was going to do a hoax, I'd look at what the other guy did to make sure that, you know, it wasn't totally out of whack. And what's interesting is if they are hoaxes, they are consistent. Like, you don't get a footprint that is two or three times the size of what one would expect. Um, mm -hmm. They are within a range of sizes. And in fact, I encountered one story that I found very interesting because the footprints showed a deformity in the foot. And they were also found around a garbage dump on the outskirts of a town. And it seemed just, it seemed like a really sophisticated hoax because. And I'm going to get into something that I found so cool. It's called uh, Z Zadig's method. 
you can tell a lot from a footprint, apparently. Now, this isn't just, this isn't cryptozoology. This is just straight up zoology. You can tell from, if you see a cleft hoof footprint on your nature walk, you can tell if that animal is a vegetarian or not. You can tell if that animal has a big round belly or, you know, a lean muscular belly. You can tell all these amazing things just from the footprint. And this is something called Zadig's or Zadig's method. And I had to, this was another rabbit hole I went down because it's rare that I actually get to find new methods in my research about how that could apply to my own work. Zadig turns out to be a character in a vault in one of Voltaire's novels. He's a fictional character, but he's asked by the queen to go find her lost dog. Well, it turns out this last dog has got all these peculiarities, limps a little bit, had long ears, just gave birth, stuff like that. And he's able to tell, oh, you see this part in the footprint, that's actually probably part of the ear. And you see this foot isn't being pressed down hard enough. And that means it maybe has a little bit of a limp. So this is definitely the dog and the dog is going in that direction. T.H. Huxley says what Voltaire is talking about is actually a method used by scientists. And here I have a quote from Huxley. Quote, Today, someone who sees the print of a cloven hoof can conclude that the animal which left the print was a ruminative one. And this conclusion is as certain as any that can be made in physics or moral philosophy. This single track, therefore, tells the observer about the kind of teeth, the jaws, the haunches, the shoulders, and the pelvis of the animal which has passed. It is more certain evidence than all Zadig's clues. It goes on to say that this is how paleontologists, astrophysicists, astronomers, and other people have to do their work. They have to kind of divine the creature out of these footprints. I feel like I've heard this kind of analysis talked about in terms of people only in the context of... um, studying hunter-gatherers. I feel like I've read something before about analyzing the footprints that you could tell, like, who would have been the, the mother carrying a child or something. Yeah. In the difference in the pressure of her feet and her footsteps, because you could tell where she was weight-bearing, where she wasn't, which that just spoke to me right when you said that. And another thing, so you mentioned um, Sasquatch and indigenous cultures, and that's maybe the one context I have heard of Sasquatch being um, discussed. And there it's been like a symbol or a sign of good luck, which is totally opposite to Mothman. Oh, that's right. true. Foreboding of catastrophe. So here we're dealing with some like these kind of opposite creatures in a way. And that was the thing I found that there was in the earlier accounts, uh, conflicting accounts with the with this uh, kind of present day stories. Now, mm-hmm. I have personally not read this book, so I don't know if I can actually recommend it. But if anybody's interested in the connection between Bigfoot stories and uh, indigenous culture, there's a book called Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, Bigfoot in Native Culture by Kathy Strain. And apparently this book, which I was simply, unfortunately, not able to get before we went to record catalogs a bunch of these stories. So back to this one hoax, or this one footprint, sorry. We don't know if it was a hoax. What's so interesting about this footprint is that it seemed to indicate that 
there was a deformity or an injury that happened to this Bigfoot's leg. And that would give justification why, unusually, this Bigfoot should be scurrying and scavenging near a garbage dump. Now, this is the kind of stuff that makes me wonder because it's a pretty sophisticated hoax, right? I mean, if you're going to do a Bigfoot hoax, you're going to go out into the forest somewhere in Washington and you stamp a bunch of big feet marks around. You're not going to do it near a garbage dump on the outskirts of some little mining town somewhere, right? Well, I mean, I can um, tell you exactly how I would pull off a Bigfoot hoax if that was something I was interested in. That was one of my questions to both of you. So why don't you both tell me how you would pull off a Bigfoot hoax? Step one, I rent a gorilla suit. Step two, I put on the gorilla suit. Step three, I have one of you take a picture of me that's blurry of me running through the forest. Step four, profits. Okay. I mean, maybe I'd like set up some friends that I knew like we're out camping or something. And then I would get that gorilla outfit and maybe I'd actually just like fake it. Mind you, I wouldn't be tall enough. So I don't know. I'd have to figure out maybe on stilts or something in the gorilla outfit. Um, maybe I'd prime them a little bit ahead of time, you know, like tell them some stories. Oh, you guys are going to that region? Oh, I've heard that there's been like, <laughs> maybe I'd like, prime them really nicely. So that I, I've heard be- that there's some exceptionally small Bigfoot out there. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That one special tiny Bigfoot. That, as if it were planned, brings me nicely to one of the Big sightings you have to know about if you're interested in Bigfoot research at all. This is what's also so frustrating about Bigfoot research, is that the hoaxes, if they're hoaxes, are really good. So, and this is, uh, if this was a hoax, this was a really good hoax. And it is called the Patterson-Gimlin film. Oh, In fact, so famous. It's gone into, it's known in the community simply as the PG film. So... Yeah. So it's like saying the the Zapruder film. It's like one of those films that's so famous that you just need the name and off you go. And everybody's like, and and you can, it's it's also a way you can sort of classify people. It's just like the Zapruder film, like for or against, right? The same thing with uh, the Patterson Gimlin film, for or against, will tell you a lot about whether this person is believes Bigfoot, believes the contemporary research in it, stuff like that. So very briefly. Two guys. Well, it's. I'll let you guys determine what you think happened with the Patterson-Gimlin film. So Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin in 1967 are interested in making a kind of a documentary about Bigfoot or a film about Bigfoot. And they go, again, Humboldt County, Northern California, into the forests out there. And they're filming, you know, scenes of nature and whatever to hopefully maybe catch one or And then suddenly they see something and you can try and find this on YouTube yourself. Although the rights to the film are private, it's not been um, released to the public, but they see something. And what is it that they see? It's, it's, it's quite blurry and it's about 60 feet away and it lasts less than a minute in the shot. Now it it does last for, I think 59.5 seconds in the shot. And it is, a big, hairy something, long arms, like longer than you would expect arms. And it looks back at the filmmakers and then just, you know, one of the camera people, one of the two, I forget if it's Patterson or Gimlin, run after this creature. They aren't able to get there. And then um, 
they come back later and they take some casts of the footprints. And yeah, they were huge. So you guys should take a look at this. Anybody listening should take a look at this. But at first, this is the kind of stuff that I would just dismiss out of hand. I mean, I would dismiss it for precisely the reason that the way you guys were going to do a fake, which is like, well, you know, it's kind of blurry and it's somebody in a gorilla suit. So, you know, what? But it turns out the controversy around this film is remarkable. Everybody has weighed in on it. And I'm going to give you my two cents in a minute. And I think there is some, some evidence why we maybe want to be skeptical. But on the other hand, it hasn't been definitively disproven as a hoax. There's nothing in it. You know, um, I think in the last episode on Mothman, Nathan was talking about um, the flying saucer hoax where they put the flying saucer on a, on a string. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was pretty, film, it, was, it was pretty shady. This film is not like that. Um, this, so at first I thought, oh, clearly, it's just you know somebody walking in a gorilla suit. Well, let me ask you, what would be some of the things, if you only had the film to go by, what would be some of the things you would look to to see if you could disprove that or not? Zippers. Yeah, okay. So any kind of physical evidence that shows up in the film itself if it was a costume, I would look for a certain awkwardness in the creature because, of course, very few creatures can survive being awkward. But if you were wearing a costume and the arms were a bit longer and you were trying to imitate something that wasn't human, you would probably move in a very unnatural, kind of gangly sort of manner. So if it seemed to me that the, the, the creature was, was walking in this kind of uncomfortable way, that might lead me to think, well, this probably isn't a natural creature. This is probably somebody in a costume. How about you, Elena? What would you look for? The problem with this, too, is if it's like, a, first I thought, well, see how cute like it looks. But if it's a great ape and it's related to humans in some way, maybe it would look, have a similar, you know, walk to us or something. So, so that doesn't really help. Um, if it looks real or not, but then it's hard to trust a lot of the images and videos we see because we don't know how much manipulation can go into them as well. So uh, That's such a good well, point. Uh, what's interesting, though, this video, of course, was taken at a time before video manipulation became as easy and as accessible as it is now. That's true. And that, that's one of the, for those who believe this is, is a real encounter with a Bigfoot, that's one of the points that they will point to. They say, look, this was done in 1967. It was done by some amateur um, videographers. This is not, you know, your high budget kind of special effects stuff. And even that isn't going to be great. I mean, even Planet of the Apes. Uh, Nathan, this will be a question to you. When does the first Planet of the Apes come out? I feel like 68, 69. And I don't know, those suits were not great. I never thought at that no, they At no were. point did I feel like I was watching actual apes. No, right? I mean, exactly. I guess humans are apes, but at no point did I feel like I was watching non-human <laughs> apes. But Elena, to your earlier point, that's actually really interesting, which was one thing that both plays in favor of those who argue for Bigfoot and those who argue against is that actually, because we don't have what is called a holotype, we don't have anything to refer Bigfoot to, so we don't know if what we're seeing makes sense or not, mm -hmm. you know, beyond the obvious logical stuff. So a holotype is a single physical example of an organism which is used as the basis for the description of a new species. So this is what you would need 
if you wanted to convince science that you had actually found something new. You would need a physically existing sample. It could be as small as DNA. If you had some legit DNA, but DNA is hard because if you don't have the organism to which it belongs, you just have some DNA that you don't know what it belongs to. So actually, you would need some kind of physical specimen, like maybe from an arm upwards, you know, to be able to say, well, to compare it to, right? When I was going through the film, this is way too deep. Like we could do three episodes just on the pros and cons uh, for points that uh, validate and discredit this film. But I'll give you one sense of how sophisticated some of this discussion actually is. An anatomist looked at it. I think it was an anatomist looked at it and said, that doesn't make any sense. That's a person in a gorilla suit. And the reason we know is because they're butt is too round. The huh. buttocks is too round, and gorillas have flat butts. I never so even busted. thought to look at the butt. Exactly! You wouldn't even think, like, if I was going to do a hoax, who would think about the butt of the suit, right? Okay. But. But. Uh, but, uh, but. but. Um, the rejoinder is, to again, to Elena's point, yeah, but Bigfoot is bipedal, and that's why we got big butts, because mm-hmm. we need these big butt muscles in order to walk around. On, on, on two legs as opposed to four. And that's why we got round butts. So in fact, if it were a Sasquatch, and if Sasquatches are bipedal, which they are, I mean, that's the assumption, then it would have a round butt. Well, now in those mountainous regions, they need some strong glute to get that's up those hills. That's it. So what I found so fascinating just in that little microcosm of a debate is it actually doesn't get us any further. It's super interesting. But if I was, if I had screwed up the hoax and I didn't think to think about someone's butt who was in the gorilla suit, they would have a round butt in my hoax. But it turns out that actually is the way it should be if it were. So a lot of the evidence ends up being like this. Okay. Uh, Elena, I feel um, like we're getting a real glimpse into the last two weeks of Lee's life right now. <laughs> I'm telling you, I went way deep here and I, I, uh, I love it. I, I, I had tons of fun. There's, so the footage has been debated ad nauseum, just endlessly. And of course, you can imagine the fault lines Skeptics say, clearly a fake. Proponents say, what more could you want? Clearly it's real. There is compelling evidence on both sides. You know, you can take out of it what you want. There is, though, something that makes me suspicious beyond what's in the footage itself. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing is that the timeline given by Patterson and Gimlin doesn't make sense. The timeline about when they saw it, and what they did afterwards. So apparently they see the Bigfoot. They then try and chase it. They don't get anywhere. So what they do is they ride on horseback back to their camp for five kilometers to get their casting material, to bring it back, to pour the casts. They bring it back. They pour the cast. They wait for the plaster to dry. Then they load up their horses with the cast. They go back five kilometers to camp. When they then load the horses up to a trailer and all their gear and then drive 40 kilometers uh, back to where they were from and arrive there at 4 p.m. in order to uh, get these 
casts to a newspaper. And people have looked at this timeline and said, that just can't work. That, that's not possible. So then the story started to change. And this is where I get very suspicious. <laughs> Patterson and Gimlin then start changing their story about how they got the plaster casts from where they apparently saw the Bigfoot to town. Then it was like, oh, we hired a chartered plane. So somebody looks into, are there any chartered planes flying that day? And it turns out there weren't because it was really bad weather. There was stuff like that, kind of circumstantial evidence that made me suspicious of their film. But if it is a hoax, it's a really good one. Um, That seems to be kind of the consensus, even among the skeptical community, is, yeah, probably a hoax, but a really good one. Now, did now, the two of them things, did did either of them ever come out and admit anything? Did the two of them okay. hold pretty tight to each other's stories? Well, so this happens in in October of 1967. Patterson dies of cancer in 1972. Gimlin doesn't talk about it for the next 25 years. The few times he mentions anything be, in those 25 years, he's like, "I had nothing to do with any hoax." That's mm-hmm. all he said. But he maintained the rights to the film and has been making money off of it. But he, he never came out and said that it was a fake. There are other circumstantial things here that make me slightly uncomfortable. Ten days after they do this footage, they found a company called Bigfoot Enterprises. Mm-hmm. And they actually start making some money as a result of the footage. Not crazy amounts of money, but good money for you know people who aren't making a lot of money. Patterson was trying to sell a documentary to interested buyers, an A&E, uh, A&E bit, and they gave him money. This is not for the Patterson-Gilman film. This is as a result of it. He's shopping this film around. He's like, I want to make a documentary about Bigfoot. A&E is like, sure, let's do one. They wanted to call it Bigfoot, America's Abominable Snowman. And for that movie, they get Gimlin's neighbor, a guy named Bob Hieronymus. Uh, That's to dress an amazing name. A, right? I know. Uh, to, to dress up in a gorilla suit, which they had altered by lengthening the arms and having the person inside wear a you know, football padding, including a helmet and shoulder pads. The bigger butt, too? Is that part of the padding? No, I think, right. I, I think that might have just been the dude's butt. I don't want to say too much. I don't know. But... They did make a fake. They earned money off of the film that was the sighting. And some of the stuff around the original film, I don't know. It doesn't add up. The timeline doesn't add up. They start changing their minds about exactly how it worked. So I'm skeptical. Yeah, changing story doesn't sound good. It sounds like their motives are questionable. Um, There's definitely a lot of question marks in and around that, I would say. That's the Patterson-Gimlin film, which has gone into Bigfoot lore as really one of the best sightings. There are other sightings, like really famous ones, and you can look them up. There is other footage besides the Gimlin, Patterson-Gimlin film. There's what's known as the Freeman footage and the Memorial Day footage. And uh, uh, those are much easier to find because they've just been uploaded to uh, YouTube. And so in the Freeman footage, uh, as a guy making Bigfoot casts and out looking, sort of looking at Bigfoot tracks and then sees a Bigfoot. But just like in the Patterson-Gimlin film, it's over there, far away, and won't come close, and, you know, 
could be somebody in a gorilla suit. I guess I'll give you, let me give you some of the reasons why I think that this is, there's, there, there might be something to this. If it turned out that Bigfoot were real, I think I would be less shocked than if I found out that uh, Courtney Love killed Kurt Cobain. Like that's how you would be less shocked. That's how by that. okay I am with Bigfoot. Here. You are okay that's with Bigfoot. Like, I am okay with Bigfoot. I gotta admit, I don't think so. I don't think so, but I'm okay. I'm okay. It wouldn't it wouldn't ruin my life if I <laughs> if Bigfoot. anything, it sounds like it would make your life way better. I think so. Okay, let me give you a few reasons why there are some compelling notions why Bigfoot might exist. First of all, something like Bigfoot already existed. In the fossil record, it's called Gi- Gigantopithecus, and it was a three meter, that's, a, that's almost 10 feet, an almost 10 foot tall bipedal ape. That's a big ape. That's huge. It, it, it lived from 2 million to 300,000 years ago. It's 2 million to 300,000 years ago, which, depending on how you date the emergence of Homo sapiens sapiens, might have coincided with human beings, or roughly thereabout. The, the fossil remains of Gigantopithecus were discovered in China, I think, and uh, by a guy named Ralph von Königswald, who actually, guess where he discovers it? Guess. I found this totally fascinating. I'm going to guess in a cave. In a cave. Elena, what do you think? Where, where is this amazing remain of the like the largest ape I know to have ever existed. Where would you imagine it could be been discovered? Um, honestly, I have no idea. Um, but I'm so curious because of what I'm trying to figure out what your what's in your head because you're so excited about how kind of bizarre it is. He found um, it in a pharmacy. What? What? I know. He found it. You mean too, like ground up is, bones as medicine? Yes, but they hadn't oh. ground up the bone yet. Oh. Now, so he finds this giant tooth. He's like, what the heck is this? He buys it uh, and then, you know, sits on one of the biggest discoveries of probably his lifetime. Anyway. So that's uh, that, that's the story he tells. I'm suspicious yeah. that maybe he went in to buy some kind of like herbal Viagra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they gave him this giant tooth and he's like, wait a second. <laughs> now, the thing about this gigantopithecus living in East Asia is significant because one of the arguments against big... So, okay, so let me say that the idea then is that, look, giant apes have existed. Why not a North American giant ape? Maybe related to humans, but maybe not. Maybe just part of the hominid tree, but not a human. Maybe descended from this giant ape. Maybe those apes wandered across the land bridge, which also would have existed uh, during the time that which this thing existed. So that's the idea. You would be looking for a Gigantopithecus americanus, basically, to put it in the fancy science term, which I think Bigfoot researchers need to do if people are going to take them more seriously. I'm searching for a Gigantopithecus americanus as opposed to, you know, some like Hollywood monster. Right. But here's the thing with the fossil record. There's no fossilized remains of giant apes in in America. That's the thing. Like, we know about a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't exist anymore, but we are pretty sure it existed because we found fossils. 
And the other stuff that does exist, it also has a fossilized trail, right? So one of the arguments for Sasquatch is, well, these things did actually exist. We have a record of them. But then an argument against them is, yeah, but there's no record of them in North America, which is where you claim they exist. Right. Ah, but. But. Here's, but. But. There's a third but. There's a third but. There's a which third is big that, round but. <laughs> there's a third but, which is that actually most things that have existed, we don't have a fossil record. True. Because so not everything imagine, that dies leaves a, a fossil record. Yeah, because it's, it's you got to die in the right place, the right time, under exactly the right conditions to leave a fossil record. And this was something that I found actually compelling too. You want a body, right? If you're going to find, if you want to believe in Bigfoot, you at the end, you really want to have a body. But how many times have you guys found the body of a bear in the forest? Zero times. Zero times. There's a fossil record for big apes. There's no fossil record in North America. But then on the other hand, there's no fossil record for most things. Mm-hmm. And there's so much about Bigfoot research that works like this. It's like, it's a plausible idea. We don't really have enough evidence. And there's kind of pros and cons against one side or the other until we actually find the holotype. There's something else that I found interesting as well. And that is that animals that are closer to the poles tend to be bigger than their counterparts that are closer to the equator. And so that's one of the arguments for why, if there were a North American ape, that ape might be significantly larger than the counterparts that we would see in Africa or places where you would expect to find apes. The other thing I was thinking about is the coelacanth, right? Which sure. we talked about before, which was believed to have been extinct in the Cretaceous period, which is ends 1.145 million years ago. And then it's suddenly discovered in 1938. Yeah, like I said in the Mothman episode, anytime you're talking to a cryptozoologist, anytime they they seem to be maybe losing the argument a little bit, all they have to do is say, hey, coelacanth, man, coelacanth. And you yeah, have to admit, that's a good point. Yeah. So is the Gigantopithecus the kind of version of uh, coelacanth? You know, is, is it that's just That's a like, heck of a well, sentence you just said. Yeah, <laughs> the things I get up to on this podcast. But it's it was compelling, again, because I approach this really from the standpoint of, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. Let's just like, let's just put it to bed. And here I have, the, the here's, let me put it like this. The kinds of things that I would look for are precedent. You know, has there been precedent of we thought an animal was gone and then we found it? Well, yes, there was. Mm-hmm. Is there precedent for there are mythological stories about this kind of monstrous creature that exists? Nobody really believes it, but then we discover it. Yes, indeed. You know, the the Kraken is just one of many examples of that. Is there a fossil record for something like it? Yeah, actually, there is. Could you explain the absence of a fossil record in a relatively coherent way? Yeah, you kind of can. Can you account for their behavior? Can All of it kind of makes sense-ish. We just haven't found one. So now let me so ask you it, this then. Yeah. Where because we're 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 long past the hour the hour mark of this episode. Let me ask you this. Where did you <laughs> land on Bigfoot? I kind of don't think Bigfoot exists because I'm a pessimist and because I'm a skeptic. 
and because I think the universe is more bad than good. Wow. But those are not good signs. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. This just took a turn, this podcast. Are you okay, Lee? I'm okay, thanks. Uh, but I feel like, again, I, I, I put this in the Mothman episode. I feel like if this, if I were wrong about this, it wouldn't challenge my underlying assumptions. It would just add something new to my knowledge that I didn't know. In the same way, like, you know, if I discover, oh, look, there's that thing, there's the coelacanth, or there's a kraken, that does not blow my mind. Now, I'm no oceanographer or, you know, researcher in this field. Maybe it would blow my mind if I was. But it doesn't challenge my underlying, it doesn't change the rest of my reality, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think Bigfoot exists in, in, in part because the evidence is always tinged with something like, it was with the Patterson-Gimlin film. Right. There's always something where you can point to like... There's uh, just a whiff of hucksterism about it. Yeah. Uh, I should say, for example, um, I mentioned Jerry Crew, who took the early plaster casts in 1958. His buddy, Ray Wallace, when Ray Wallace dies, his family's like, yeah, he made it all up. Here's uh, the Here are the footprints right. uh, that he used to make the casts. And so... You often have a kind of, there's a whiff of something that makes me uncomfortable with the best evidence that they're coming up with, mm-hmm. while at the same time agreeing that scientifically there's nothing implausible about this at all. No, and but, the, do, but the, the burden of proof lies with the people who are arguing that Bigfoot does exist. Yeah. Theirs is the responsibility to provide the evidence that it does exist, rather than other people to provide evidence that it doesn't. Yes. And so for for now, I remain on the side of probably no, but much more open-minded, I think, now than I was before I started the research. Huh. Which is always yeah, a good thing. How about, that too. How about was, you guys? Yeah, I was just going to say that I was very skeptical at the start. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I'm a lot, I'm a, I'm a little more open to the fact that there could be this, this uh, creature that exists out there. Although, like you said, so it's like there's the possibility, but we still don't have proof to say for sure, yes, this creature exists. Yeah, I think I have to agree with the two of you. And I also have very depressing reasons for not believing in the existence of Bigfoot. Uh, my reasons are humanity, especially in in places like North America, has sprawled with suburbs and we've we've had massive deforestation and we have encroached on like all areas that we have. And it just seems to me that there are so few kind of pristine environments that have been untouched by humans that something this large could exist in, especially with everybody having cell phones and everybody has cameras on them all the time. So mm-hmm. I, I also think there probably isn't a Bigfoot, unfortunately, just because I don't think there's enough places for one to be, because I think there's so many places that we are. Hmm. Oh, I should say, if anybody's interested in finding out more about this stuff, you could do worse than going to Derek Randall's Olympic Project uh, page. So if you type Olympic Project Bigfoot into Google, for example, uh, that'll take you to one of the research projects um, aggregating information from uh, individual researchers. Derek Randall's himself is a firm believer in Bigfoot, but his method seems to be fairly objective. What they're trying to do is they're just trying to compile as much data as they can 
so that they can generate patterns and potentially predictive models. Okay. Um, I mean, I kind of, I almost wish I was one of those people. Imagine, imagine how excited they are by, by any of this data that they see or anything that they gather. And like, imagine being so immersed in something and wanting to show the world that this thing exists. That's, I can, I can kind of feel their excitement for them. Well, this was one of the first things that struck me about the Bigfoot community in as much as I understand and experience them is that there was a lot more lightheartedness. Hmm. Not to say that people aren't taking it seriously, but there was a, it, I was really struck by the number of people interviewed who said things like, you know, if I never find one, it's okay because I'm spending my days outside in nature and I love camping and point. I love hanging out in the wild. And there was even one guy, I forgot his name now, I'm sorry, but he said, I've stopped taking cameras out. I'm not even into proving this to other people. I'm sure he exists, Bigfoots exist, and I just want to go enjoy my time outdoors. See, that's nice because um, it seems like more of a hobby rather than like an existential need to prove ex something. Exactly. So, no, look, there are real hardcore Bigfooters out there, including people like Rene de Hinden, who spent their entire life, sacrificed their marriage, everything on top of it to prove Bigfoot was real. De Hinden uh, ends it all, uh, ends his research career in this really tragic way, which is basically like, look, I spent my life looking for this. I never found it. But most people in the Bigfoot community that I experienced had more of Derek Randall's position. He's the head of the Olympic project. And he was like, you know, you got to accord this the proper place in your life. It's behind family. It's behind your job. It's behind, you know, your hobbies. And then it's Bigfoot. Well, really, and this relates to what you said. I think it was in the Mothman episode where, like, if you suddenly got some evidence that aliens have been here, that would you, that would make you question, like, a lot of things you think or, like, it would question yeah. your view versus if you realize that Mothman or Bigfoot existed, it wouldn't fundamentally shift any of your paradigms, you know? Exactly. I, I felt like a lot of these folks are kind of having fun in the forests. Uh, if, if you're an outdoorsy kinds of person and you're looking for a hobby, in fact, one of the most charming books that I read in, in preparation for this was Animal Planets Finding Bigfoot. And it's a it's a it's a book for kids, uh, and it comes with very helpful advice on how to convince your parents uh, that you want to go camping. Use words like study. It says you want to study human evolution, <laughs> and it does. It, it tells you about how to pack a Bigfoot lunch and things like that, which are very adorable. But it was also it was a really actually a really great read because it was trying to introduce uh, young people to science by questioning whether Bigfoot is real. But it did seem to have this sort of family aspect to it as well. This is the kind of thing you can get into with your family. There are uh, outfits that basically introduce people to camping by telling them that they're going on a Bigfoot excursion. And it always starts with, look, chances are you're not going to see a Bigfoot. And they take a whole bunch of young kids out and, you know, they go traipsing in the woods and setting up a tent and learning all the campy stuff while being part of, you know, this, this, this quest. So it had this, I don't know, it had a lighthearted side to it that I found quite surprising. 
there doesn't also seem to be too much of a conspiratorial element. There is a conspiracy in the sense that some argue that the scientific community is actually putting up barriers to seeing the evidence that's out there. And there is a uh, one area of this, which we didn't talk about, which posits that uh, Bigfoot is actually placed here by aliens to keep an eye out on us. Well, and so, okay. Yeah. So then it gets conspiratorial. Now, there's one last thing that I wanted to talk about, because Lee, this isn't your first encounter with Bigfoot. How do you mean? Well, you were telling me this the other day in, in confidence and in private. Oh, so I'm, gl- I'm glad you're bringing it up then. So, so I'm going to bring it up in public on the podcast. <laughs> but there is a film starring John Lithgow called Harry and the Hendersons. That's right. Now, are you, willing, are you willing to discuss your experience with that film with our, with well, our listeners? I, okay, I should first say that in my research, one of the researchers, one of the Bigfooters, said that that was maybe the best description of a Bigfoot's character in Hollywood ever. That they're, they're generally, you know, made too scary or aggressive. And this is actually like kind of a family creature. Anyway, I went when the film came out uh, with my dad, actually. Um, and I cried at the end of the movie uh, because Harry is sent packing back into the forest. If you, I'm sorry if you haven't seen the film. Spoiler, but that was just spoiler too much alert for, me. for Harry and the Hendersons. Spoiler alert for Harry and the Hendersons. That, that was too much for my little 10-year-old brain to manage. It's a very powerful was, moment. John Lithgow, yeah. like, sells that sadness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still that. sad. Did you see it, Elena? Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure I cried, too. But I cry at a lot of movies, so it's not exceptional for me. Oh. It was very public crying. <laughs> I'm sure the whole theater was crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Maybe. I think we should give a shout out to our new listeners in Wayne, New Jersey. Um, yeah, what's noticed- going on in, in Wayne, New Like in the last month, our listens have taken off in a place called Wayne, New Jersey. I don't know, but I want them to tell us. Maybe they can go on Instagram and tell us whether or not our guests, what was, did we settle on the idea that they were interested in cryptids and maybe the Jersey Devil maybe. had drawn them? But def- I think in honor of all these listens that we're getting in Wayne, New Jersey, I think we should do an episode on the Jersey Devil. All right. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Can some can can anybody uh, from Wayne, New Jersey, email us some sightings? Ooh, that'd be good. Or ideally, some pictures. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. What's our email address again, Nathan? Podcast at theuncoverup.com. Um, follow us on Instagram comment please engage with us we're going to try and do another live episode at some point quarantine Um, or not episode but sort of a live go live for a bit and chat mainly about COVID-19 stuff and these new conspiracies that are kind of popping up and and taking taking the internet by storm yeah and I guess that's really the last thing that we'll want to say today is that we hope that everybody listening is safe and that your loved ones and family are safe and that you're washing your hands and and you're taking care. Yeah, staying home and staying safe. Take care, everyone.